The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. All right, good morning. Uh, I'm Ikan, one of the covenant partners here, and uh, really glad to go through another passage in Ephesians together. Um, but, okay, we've got quite a lot. So first things first, if your bum is on a seat here and you don't have a hard copy ESV Bible, please put up your hand. Uh, we do this every week, but someone will hand you a hard copy Bible, and this is your possession to keep forever and ever. Anyone? I know some of you here don't have an ESV Bible, but I know that for a fact. So uh, <laughs> obviously I have people I know visiting today. Okay. Anyway, uh, if, you, if you don't have one, just ask for one. All right, uh, but a big welcome to you if you are visiting us, uh, if it's your first time. I think we do have some new faces. Uh, we love that you're here, all right? Um, just to explain what we're doing if you're a bit out of the loop, we're in week six of our series in the book of Ephesians, and we're calling this series uh, In Christ, called United Empowered. Okay, so we're gonna go straight into it because uh, we have quite a lot of ground to cover today. Um, and this week, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. So if you can turn there, I'm going to read in a second. Um, we're going to be talking about missions, okay? We're going to read how Paul interrupts himself. He's, he's in the middle of writing, right? We've gone through two chapters, and he's going to interrupt himself to raise a point about his life's mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And we're going to see what that means for our mission today. Uh, but I just want to make a brief kind of personal note here, because... Missions is a really big topic, and we could say a lot of things, and there are a lot of things that I want to say, right, really honestly, um, but that's not what we're doing today. We're going to look at what Paul writes, um, which means that we're not going to be able to say everything we want to say or we wish we could cover in terms of missions, but we are going to see uh, what this text means and what, it, what bearing it has on our mission, right, which means we won't get to cover everything. All right, so let me read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and then I'll pray for us. Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. Everyone's there? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, to whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Lord, as we come before this text today, um, like I said, there, there are so many things that we, we know about missions, um, and it is something that is absolutely crucial. Um, we as your church 
must witness to our faith in your Son. Um, help us, Lord, today as we look at the text um, to by your Spirit be to behold the glory of the gospel, the same gospel that we preach week in, week out. I pray that it won't be stale to us, but that we will be revived in our hearts and we'll treasure Christ, our Lord and Savior, and see how this is a good message, how this is good news to the world. So help us by our spirit as we look at the text. Um, I pray that we will have change of heart today and not just of our heads. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1536, William Tyndale was executed for translating the Bible into English because he believed that the Bible should be read and understood by all peoples. Not too long after, uh, Hugh Latimer, influenced by the Reformation, insisted on preaching the gospel freely instead of Catholic beliefs. And in 1555, he was burned at the stake with another friend. Fast forward in the late 1800s, Amy Carmichael left the shores of Belfast, Ireland, and eventually served on mission in India for 55 years. In 1932, Gladys Aylward left London to serve in China and served there for most of her adult life, caring for orphans. In 1956, Jim Elliott and four friends were speared to death in the jungles of Ecuador, trying to reach the Huarani tribe with the gospel in 1973, Wang Ziming was executed in front of 10,000 people during China's Cultural Revolution for refusing to obey the authorities and act contrary to the gospel. And he said, my hands have baptized many converts and should not be used for sinfulness. And in 2017, Pastor Raymond Ko was kidnapped in Petalingjaya, Selangor for preaching the gospel to all peoples in Malaysia. To this day, he has not been found and no body has been recovered. Well, aren't we off to a cheerful start? All right. But okay, as I read out that long list of bios and deaths, here's what you probably thought. Okay? I hazarding guess. You're probably thinking something along the lines of, wow, amazing. Heroes of faith, great. You know, they were made of something else. You know, they just built different, right? You're probably thinking something along those lines, a bit in awe. So it's worth asking, right? What is it that drove them? And that's what we're going to find out today. We're going to see how they were driven by the same thing that drove Paul and how we can be driven to mission today. We're going to look, look at something called the Gentile mission. Now, I know we don't exactly use the word Gentile in everyday conversation. Right? If you do, please let me know. I'm very curious. Um, but let's be really clear what it means. Okay? So let's do it this way. Is anyone in this room a Jew? Okay? No, so you're a Gentile. All right? uh, anyone in the world who is not a Jew is a Gentile. Okay? So when we talk about the Gentile mission, okay, that literally means the mission to reach the rest of the whole world with the gospel. Right? Anyone who is not a Jew, which is a lot, a lot of people. Okay, so we're going to look at the text in just two main parts. Okay, we're deviating from our standard practice of three-point sermons. All right, we're going to look at the message of the mission, that's verses 1 to 6, and the heart for the mission, that's verses 7 to 13. So the message of the mission and the heart for the mission, and we're going to start with the message. All right, so look at verse 1. Now, Paul starts with a preamble. Right? He says, For this reason, I, Paul, 
Um, but he suddenly breaks off. And if you look at your Bibles, you see a hyphen, a dash. It's quite rare. Um, and what's going on here is it's an interruption. He literally breaks off mid-sentence. And then he goes off into verses 2 to 13. So what's going on? Paul has just spent two entire chapters unpacking dense theology, which he just went through. And he's now getting ready to pray. And how do we know this? If you skip ahead to verse 14 you find the exact same phrase repeated, right? For this reason, I, right? And then what Paul does in verses 15 to 21 is he prays. Uh, so we can see what his original intention was. By the beginning of verse 1, Paul changes his mind and decides to go into verse, verses 2 to 13 instead, before praying. Okay, so we're bound to ask, right? So what is it in verse 1 that needs explaining so that he doesn't have to mention again in verse 14? And basically... Uh, the explanation of today's text is from this phrase, right? I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's where everything is stemming from. So why does Paul feel the need to explain his imprisonment? What's the big deal, right? It's not like it's not the first time he's been in prison, right? Well, Paul is thinking of his listeners, and he's anticipating that the Ephesian church might see an apparent disconnect between his message in chapter 1 and 2 and his current circumstances, right? So they're probably thinking something along the lines of, wait, Paul, you've just spent two chapters talking about this great God who's able to save sinners and had a plan before the creation of the world, right? Who is so powerful and sovereign, you said we ought to pray to him. But look at where you are. You're in prison, right? Are you sure that this God that you proclaim to us is really that great? right? There's a bit of a dissonance, disconnect, right? And maybe they might be beginning to have a, a bit of doubt. You know, what if persecution comes? You know, how, how are they going to stand up to persecution? So to respond to this, Paul decides to backtrack a bit and remind them how he got to where he was in the first place. Now, he assumes that they've heard some of his story, right? How he came to receive God's grace for him to pass on. And he could assume this because in Acts 19, uh, we did, we, you read that, you know, Paul did spend some time in Ephesus and, and in the next chapter, he bade them a tearful farewell. So there was more than just a casual relationship there, right? Uh, he evidently had quite close ties. And so they, you know, the Ephesian church, even if he didn't get to meet all of them, probably they would have heard some of his testimony and they kind of know who he is, right? Paul, this apostle. Um, so Paul, Paul answers them with verses 1 to 3. Okay, he says, verse 1, I'm here on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay, why? Verse 2, because I'm a steward of this grace that I'm trying to pass on to you. And what is this grace? Verse 3, this grace is a mystery. Okay, we're going to unpack that later. But basically, we can summarize all of this in one sentence, right? Paul is in prison because he is on mission to bring God's grace in the gospel to the Gentiles. All right? But you know what's really interesting? As Paul responds to this apparent disconnect, do you realize he doesn't actually mention his imprisonment and suffering again until verse 13? It just doesn't appear in the verses in between. Right? It only, he only mentions it all the way at the end one more time. And this is actually quite telling because Paul's response to his suffering isn't to zoom in to the circumstances. Right? We, he doesn't talk about what was the trial like? Uh, he doesn't uh, talk about how long his sentence is, and he doesn't talk about whether he was whipped or not or anything. He just said, you know, I'm, I'm in prison. Okay, now let me explain why. Right? And he doesn't mention it again. Right? His response is simply, I'm suffering because I'm bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. 
stunningly simple. But this implicitly shows the Ephesians something, doesn't it? And what it brings home to us is that suffering is a natural consequence of going on mission. Now, when we talk about mission, what we mean is, how are you sharing your faith? How are you witnessing to your faith? Right? That might look like saying, hey, you know, I need to pack up and go to another country, you know, if that's what God is calling you to. Um, or it could be witnessing to a friend at your workplace. And Paul is saying, no matter what your witnessing looks like, there's going to be a cost. And that's something we need to come to terms with. So Paul doesn't treat his imprisonment as something extraordinary. Okay? Instead, he assumes that suffering is normal in the course of his missionary life. And that's something we should chew on. Right? Are we willing to, at the very least, be inconvenienced or perhaps undergo far worse for the sake of witnessing to our faith? But so that's, maybe that might sound a bit overwhelming, right? And maybe you begin to ask, you know, so just how many things do I need to give up for the sake of mission, right? Maybe you're thinking, okay, you know, at least I can compile a checklist, right? And I can, you know, this much is worth it, you know, draw some boundaries for myself. Maybe that's what you're thinking, but that's the wrong question. The right question is how big is the gospel you believe in. Because Paul's response to why he's suffering is to explain this gospel message that he's carrying. So the right question for us is how big is the gospel that we are confessing? He doesn't say, look, Ephesians, I'm giving up so much for your sake. Can you just go and can you follow suit, right? Just, just give up your freedom, sacrifice, because I'm doing it. Why shouldn't you, right? You know, at the very least, that's what you could do. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He talks about the message. So how your heart of mission is depends on how big you see the gospel in your life. Now, how does Paul describe this message? Firstly, Paul calls it a mystery. Now, he doesn't mean mystery in the same way we think of nowadays, right? In the sense of reading a mystery novel, you know, something you, a puzzle you need to deduce, a logic um, or wordle or quartle, whichever one you play, right? That's, that's not what he means, right? Mystery, as Paul uses it, is something that was hidden before, but has now been revealed. It's okay, something that was hidden and that is being revealed. And if you look at the end of verse 5, this mystery is something that is revealed by the Holy Spirit. This means that you will not see or understand this mystery without the help of the Holy Spirit. And just a super quick application of that, by the way, if you want to understand the Bible better, uh, the most practical thing you can do is pray. I don't think any of us are going to say that. The Bible is always easy to understand. The most practical thing you can do is pray, ask for help. The Spirit who inspired the Scriptures is the one who's going to help you see the treasures that are in it. So ask for the Spirit's help. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to other Christians, by the way. Please do that. But it is ultimately, it is our acknowledgement that ultimately it's the Spirit who illuminates what the Bible has to say. But okay, let's get on to the big question. What is this mystery that is now being revealed? Because whatever this mystery is, it has got to be the equivalent of dynamite for Paul to say what he says and live the way that he does. And Paul actually gives us a straight answer. In verse 6, he says, okay, well, let me be really honest. Okay, When I was reading this, I was kind of like, oh, okay, verse 6, you know, why is it such a big deal? Why is Paul, a Jew, so astounded that Gentiles are now included as Verse 6, fellow heirs, 
united as one people, receive the same promises through the gospel, right? What's so groundbreaking about that, right? Hey, Paul, isn't, isn't that a bit of an overreaction? And besides, we do know that actually in the Old Testament, some Gentiles were part of Israel. Um, so for example, if you, if you look in Exodus 12, uh, Moses makes legal provision for who he calls uh, foreigners, okay, who want to be part of Israel and, and practice their customs. So it's not like this idea of Gentile, what we call Gentile inclusion, is new to the Bible, uh, to, 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 to Paul. Right? It's not new. Um, so what, what's the big deal? What's so great? And maybe I can illustrate this with a bit of a long story. Okay, so follow along. I want you to imagine for a second that sometime in Israel's years, okay, somewhere in Israel, two families live next to each other. Now, the Israelite family uh, have a son named Eddie, okay, and the other family, you know, Gentile family from some other nation, have a son named Mahmud, Gentile name, okay. And one day, Eddie sits down with Mahmud, and he's very eager. He says, Mahmud, come, come, sit down, sit down, you know. You know, I just learned today from my father that there are people in Israel who are like you, Gentile. You're my good friend, right? Come and be one of us, you know, wouldn't it be great? Mahmud says, well, you know, what's so great about being an Israelite? Eddie says, well, here's what my father taught me. You know, God has promised to make us, Israel, into a great nation and we'll be able to bless all the other people in the world and god told our father abraham many years ago that no other nation would be able to stand against us in fact this yahweh calls us his special people his treasured possession and he promises us a future of abundance we'll plant vineyards and we'll enjoy the fruit of the wine in peace doesn't that sound great Amut. but Mahmoud's a bit skeptical. Eddie, that sounds great. But how do you know any of this is true anyway? Now, how, how can you trust this God? But Eddie's a good student, and so he replies, well, you know, all those years ago, God called our father Abraham, gave him the covenant. We're still here today. We haven't been wiped out. But so much has happened in between, you know. God tested Abraham's faith, asked him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And when Abraham was about to kill Isaac, oh my gosh, God provided a ram. So Abraham killed the ram instead. And then we Israelites were in slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt, but God sent Moses to save us. And when we were facing the Red Sea, oh my gosh, this is my favorite part. You know, Moses lifted his arms to heaven and the sea, the Red Sea, parted and we walked right through. And then we had the great King David, who led us into all these battles victoriously, and now we're just waiting for that son, this final king to lead us home. And in the meantime, our priests, they offer sacrifices for our sin, they sprinkle the blood in the temple, and God hasn't destroyed us yet. So I guess it works. So I think I can trust this God, this Yahweh, he's really a faithful God. And so Mahmud says, ah, Eddie, see, I've been talking to my father too. Put yourself in my shoes. I've never grown up in your culture, right? And my whole family will have to obey your Israelite laws. You Israelites really have so many laws, you know, we've never learned them. And we'll have to learn your ways of worship with your priests, you know. But my family is quite comfortable worshipping their Asherah pole, you know, the tree at the back. It's so easy. 
right? And then you've got all these different festivals and feasts, and to top it all off, my father's almost 50, he's not too keen on getting circumcised. <laughs> and this God of yours calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave the covenant promises to Israel, and I guess I can do all this stuff and live in your nation, but that promise wasn't to me. And I hope that kind of illustrates the Old Testament background tension that we're dealing with here. We know that the scope of God's promises are wider than the nation of Israel. That's not the problem. But how is it that we Gentiles, remember, we're all Gentiles, how is it that we Gentiles would come in, receive the covenant promises on equal footing with Israel, as Paul says in verse 6, as fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise. This promise wasn't really addressed to us in the first place. How is that possible? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 6, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's why the gospel is so big to Paul, a Jew. Here's why he's astounded. You see, in Mark 15, as Jesus died, there was a Gentile standing in front of the cross, looking at the cross, a Roman soldier, centurion, they call him. And in Mark 15, 49, he famously said, truly this man was the son of God. You see, all throughout the centuries, this is how Gentiles have been saved. People from nations, tribes and nations all over the world have been brought face to face with their sin and have come face to face with Jesus on the cross the ultimate hero that all of Israel's heroes pointed to, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises to the nation of Israel. Jesus is the greater Isaac, this only son who walked up a lonely mountain with wood on his back to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the greater Moses, the prophet who, as his arms are stretched out wide, all people who profess faith in him are given safe passage through sin. Jesus is the greater David, this victorious king who triumphs through dying and then secures the future of all who take refuge in him by rising again. Jesus is the final priest who doesn't just offer sacrifices for our sin, but he becomes this all-sufficient sacrifice that the entire sacrificial system of Israel was pointing to. And whoever repents from their sin and trusts in his sacrifice is washed clean once and for all in his blood. So you see, that's why this is such a big deal. It's the fact that Gentiles can be brought into Israel's covenant promises on equal footing even though we didn't receive the covenant promises first. Let me say that again. Jesus is the ultimate hero of faith that all the Old Testament figures were pointing to, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament. To say that Israelite faith is more legitimate would be kind of like if I said, I want to get from point A to point B. Uh, I heard this illustration, I thought it was really helpful. And let's say my friend said, great, I'll give you a horse. Okay, I said, thanks. Uh, he comes back and he gives me a car. And I say, wait, what are you doing? Right, give me the horse, it's better. What's my friend gonna say? What do you mean? Right, the horse gets you there in 30 minutes, the car gets you there in five minutes. 
Why are you asking for a horse? Right? Now, all illustrations have their limits, but that's the point, right? You know, like Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises to say that, oh, you know, we're better because it, no, the end point is Christ. He's the fulfillment. That's where we started from, and therefore everything that is behind becomes ours. So, Gentile faith in Christ, our faith, cannot possibly be deficient from the faith of the Jews. And in a way, what is Israel then? Israel, through the Old Testament, is put on display for the nations of the world to see, right? Their laws, their community, their system of worship, and their occasions of deliverance by God. It's to set the stage for the coming of Christ so that the Gentile nations, you and I, would be able to fully appreciate how beautiful the gospel of Christ is. That's why Paul is so excited because he realizes, oh my word, now all peoples can be included in the covenant. People from every tribe and ethnicity are called into relationship with God and to receive these amazing promises. How big is the gospel you believe in? See, Paul's message wasn't bite-sized. It was big enough to lift the eyes of his heart above his circumstances. So this message gave Paul a heart for mission, and it should give us a heart for mission when you look at the scope of this message. But what does that heart look like? Right Now that we know what we believe, what is the heart that is bent toward mission? What does it look like? Okay, and we're going to look at our next point, the heart for the mission. And the first thing we see, we're in verses 7 to 13 now, is that Paul has a heart of humility. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace by the working of his power. In the next verse, Paul calls himself the least of all the saints. Now, we know that Paul has done some pretty great stuff, okay, like write scripture and plant lots and lots of churches. But what is he thinking here? Paul is thinking back to his conversion in Acts chapter 9 and how it was God's power at work in throwing him off his horse and blinding him. Right? You know, talk about getting off your high horse, right? He's recalling how he was not only far from God, but he was actively living to persecute and wipe out the church. Right? So Paul's conversion isn't exactly the same as switching support from one football team to another. Yeah? Right? This is Paul going from wanting to exterminate a group of people to giving up everything for their sake. Right? This is a drastic, drastic change. And so Paul is looking at his past life and he sees, he realizes that it's really only by God's grace that he's anything at all. And I think it's with that posture that he's going on mission and I think that's a good posture for us to have as well. right? Don't go up to your friend and say, listen, you heathen, uh, you don't know the truth, I do, now sit down and listen to me. right? That's, that's not the posture. right? That's, that's moral superiority. But if you remember, hey, look at where I've come from. Look at how far I was. I, I, I wouldn't be anything if God didn't reach out and his grace wasn't at work in me. I wouldn't be here. You're not going to have this superiority. You know, it's this line from a poem talking about the posture in evangelism uh, that I really like and it goes like this seeking to entreat meek and treasuring do you know my king how about that 
How about approaching people earnestly, sincerely, humbly, and respectfully to share the truth that we have, not shirking away from the truth? You, you're still asserting, hey, what I believe is true, but you're remembering how far you were before God and before God called you, and therefore how we are saved by grace alone. And that is going to humble us in our mission. The second thing we see is that Paul has a heart that is in awe of Christ. Okay, And this isn't the same thing as, as what we talked about in the first point. It's not the same thing as Paul seeing the glory of the gospel message, but this is him, him seeing the goodness in the person of Jesus and the beauty of being in relationship with him. And I think we can tell from, from how Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ right, at the end of verse 8. Right? This is the language of someone who has been meditating on all that Christ has done and is himself in communion with Jesus. And I think this is really crucial because often we can become so good at learning about Jesus and totally miss the point of being brought into communion and relationship with him. If all we learn are doctrines about Christ, and not how to save the love and beauty of relationship with Christ, then when we share our faith, it's going to be a bit like running down a theological checklist, right? Hey, friend, let me tell you about these five doctrines. Have you heard about the doctrine of sin? What about the doctrine of justification by faith? You know, have you heard of that before? Right? That's just information transfer. People come face to face with new ideas and concepts every day. Now, I'm not saying that knowledge of those doctrines is bad. Like, please don't hear me say that. You need to know more about a person in order to know them better. But please don't lead with that. Learn from your heart of relationship with Christ. Otherwise, that's knowledge without love. Right? And, and I think I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the Gospels don't present us with a watertight argument but a watertight person. When you are witnessing, you are not presenting a watertight argument to open and shut with someone. You are telling them about a person. So don't present people with doctrines about Christ apart from the beauty of the person of Christ, right? Present them together. And I, and I think that's why here at GCC, we run courses like Christianity Explored, which explore faith by studying the Gospel of Mark, where these two things are not separate from one another. Right? We're studying the scriptures, we're seeing the biblical imperatives, but we're also seeing the life of Christ and the person of Christ. So we mustn't separate these two things. And so how you relate to Christ in your personal life is going to reflect in how you witness to the people around you. Now thirdly, Paul is aware that his work is for the glory of God through the church. Now listen to verse 9. He sees his mission as bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Just think about that for a second. The church exists to show God's manifold wisdom. Not just to everyone on earth, but in the heavenly realms, right? Seriously, have you ever thought of church this way? Right? So if someone asks you, you know, how do you know God is wise? You point at the church. 
right? God's wisdom is made manifest when we gather once a week, then go out into our respective lives. It's made known by how we love one another, serve the people on us, disciple one another, reach out with the gospel. And we do this week in and week out, again and again and again. And Paul says, yup, that is God's manifold wisdom. And not only that, this is God's proof of his wisdom to the cosmic powers, to his enemies, right? God's boast of his wisdom is the church. How about that? That kind of took me aback, right? Wouldn't you expect that this amazing work of changing people's hearts would look a bit more flashy than week in and week out, doing the same thing over and over? Well, not in God's kingdom. God has chosen to have his wisdom shown by making the most important work look incredibly ordinary. And again, look at verse 11. The church isn't plan B. God's eternal purpose was to bring about the church. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, church often feels uh, really ordinary. My service in church often feels very ordinary. I hope this encourages you. Because your service has value due to the fact that the li- our life, the life of the church is about following Jesus in a long obedience together. And God's will is to make his glory known through the church. And God does not fail to bring about his will. He will make his glory known, his wisdom known in the church through our obedience, which can often feel very ordinary. And that's okay. That's great. So we've learned that the heart for the mission is one that is humble, that's in awe of Christ, and that works for the glory of God through the church. But I think as we zoom out, we reach the same problem we often do when trying to apply Scripture, right? We know what the message is. It's not that we don't know. We just talked about it. We know what the right heart should look like. Uh, And yet, we often find ourselves with so much inertia when it comes to witnessing, evangelism, missions, and talking about our faith. Why? When it, it really comes down to what Paul's talking about, right? Cost. Paul incurred a cost for bringing the message to the Gentile world. We shouldn't expect anything less. But there are lots and lots of things that we aren't willing to give up or suffer for the sake of the gospel. Maybe for some of us, having spiritual conversations is something that feels really, really awkward. Or perhaps it's the thought of talking about your faith in your work context and worrying about how people's perceptions of you might change, right? You go from talking about numbers on a spreadsheet to talking about faith in God might seem like a bit of a big jump. I'm not saying you should follow one with the other, but you know, just the thought of comparing two, it's, it's quite far right, from what people are expecting to have at work. Maybe there's a long-standing friendship that you have, but you've never talked about faith before. And you're afraid that raising the question of faith now might put the person off. And by the way, we're still waiting in the shallow end of what being missional might cost us. Right? One day, missional living might cost us much more. Just think of the example I gave at the start. Examples. Will we be ready to give up our lives if the day comes? 
how are we going to overcome this inertia? At the end of the day, at least in our culture, I think it's a lot about saving face, right? You know, I don't want people to view me a certain way. Therefore, I'd rather just not talk about my faith. Or, you know what? Inviting them to church might be a little less awkward. You know, I'm not going to witness myself, right? Just bring them through the doors and maybe they hear the gospel at some point. That's the reverse, right? We are equipping us here so that we can go out to where we are to share the gospel where we are. How do we overcome this inertia? How do we get beyond this fear? And I think the first thing we can do is look at the end of verse 12. Paul says that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him that's in Christ. Right? And I think this is a reminder of how intimately we are united with God through Christ. Right? There are no barriers between us and him. We are completely secure in him. And I think that's why this eternal purpose that Paul is writing about He's reminding us that you are within this eternal purpose when you are in Christ. So when you obediently preach the gospel to the people around you, you are living out God's purpose to build his church. And the other reassurance is, hey, we're Gentiles, right? What did we just learn? This means that those amazing promises are ours. right? No matter what happens, we can truly say that the best is yet to come. What is there to fear now? But I think the strongest encouragement comes when you look at what Paul writes in verse 13. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He's basically telling them not to be discouraged at his suffering, all right? But why? What is this glory of the Ephesian church? The glory of the Ephesian church is that because of Paul's missionary work, they accepted the gospel. Right? And Paul is equating their coming to faith with his suffering because without him taking his missionary journey and suffering, they wouldn't have come to faith. And to super summarize, Paul is saying something very simple. He's saying, it's worth it. It was worth it. Paul is saying that his suffering was worth it because they ultimately did come to know Christ. But how does that help us? And I think we can ask one final question. Where did Paul get the idea of suffering and sacrificing for the good of somebody else? In Mark 10.45, Jesus told his disciples, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And on that cross, the God who did not have to lift a finger to save sinners, gave up his life to save many. Why go on mission? Why witness to our faith when it's going to cost us a bit, a lot, Because the Lord of the universe made it his mission to suffer on the road to Calvary up that lonely mountain for your sake, in your place, and for the sake of the beautiful church that he's building to display his glory. You know, in Revelation 7 verses 9 to 10, John writes, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How many of that great multitude might be walking among us today, day by day? Would you respond to the call of the Gentile mission and reach out? How beautiful do you find Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mystery so bright. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Worthy is the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy of glory and praise from many, many people in that great multitude. And we want to labor to that end. Help us to faithfully proclaim this good news of what you have done on the cross. Spirit, I pray that you empower us. Help us to count the costs and count it worthy. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my